Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The Bowery Boys episode 143, Water for New York, the Croton Aqueduct. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we have the story of one of the most important elements in the universe. Ooh, sounds daring, <laughs> sounds big, sounds deep. This is the story of water, drinking water, bathing water, water to brew tea or beer. And specifically, water and New York City, and how New Yorkers in the 19th century first got fresh water. Using this Roman-inspired engineering marvel called the Croton Aqueduct, 41 miles of pipes, bridges, dams, and reservoirs that allowed New Yorkers to finally have clean, fresh, and healthy drinking water in the mid-19th century. The system was truly revolutionary. It became a, a marvel that attracted tourists as a site unto itself. And city planners from around the world traveled to New York to check out this aqueduct and reservoir system. Now, we're very proud today of our current drinking water. It's some of the best tasting drinking water in all of the United States. We're going to tell you a little bit about what that is actually made of today. It's a little bit of a cocktail, but the story begins with a lot of disgusting filthy sources of water. So pour yourself a drink as we dive right into the story of New York's water supply and the Croton Aqueduct. All right, Greg. Well, I think that you're going to kick us off by situating us for this episode, but before you just get into aqueducts and reservoirs, mm-hmm. because we're going to be saying the word reservoir. <laughs> reservoir and aqueduct. So many times <laughs> in this show. Before we get right into that stream of things, if you will, a very basic question. We're talking about water in New York City in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. What stopped residents from just running over to one of the nearby rivers and 
pailing out some water for themselves. It is one of these funny dichotomies of a city that needs water so badly and is yet completely surrounded by it and defined by waterfront. The problem is, is that, of course, the Hudson River and the East River are being used for many, many purposes. They're really, uh, you can't really contain them. The water itself is not very drinkable. It's an estuary, so, so the water isn't as pure and it's too salty. Up further in the Hudson, there are some communities that use the Hudson for drinking water where it's a little bit purer, but that's several miles. That's many, many miles Right, so that's not an option for New Yorkers. They need to find other places, and the first place they looked was underground. Now, back in the days of Dutch New Amsterdam, very beginning of New York history here, they would get water from two different ways, from cisterns, that would sit in the middle of squares and collect rainwater. Oh, I thought you meant that they just went off and asked their cistern for some. Case. <laughs> Unfortunately, their cistern would have their sister would have ran to the cistern. <laughs> and that wouldn't have helped anybody. Because the other source, which was a little bit more reliable, of course, was uh, wells that were actually within the city. They would drill down to these underground streams. The very first one was in 1658 right next to Fort Amsterdam. A lot of these wells were drilled by private business owners, many who were brewing their own beer, for instance, and they wanted to have their own water supply. And the water down in these wells was perfectly fine to drink? It was better than the cisterns. Let's just put mm. it that way. When the British came through, they mandated that many wells be drilled and administered privately by the citizens. There's another source of water that's very close, but it is outside the city limits at this time. And that is that fresh water pond that is Mm. just north of the city called Collect Pond. I believe we have a very notorious episode about Collect Pond. It was, in fact, the subject of our first episode, which we never released because it was that bad. (laughs) And then we did re-record it number 50. Right. Now, before 1776, this this is still well outside the city limits. It's still very bucolic, and more importantly, it's still somewhat clean, the water. And it seemed like an inexhaustible supply then. But by the time that the English were in New York for over a hundred years, factories began sprouting up, polluting the water here. And during this period, Collect Pond just became sort of a dumping ground for factories. And at the same time, people were taking water out to cook with and to clean with. Right. Now, now people weren't naive necessarily. They could taste that the water was bad. They saw that it was spreading some diseases. Probably the most popular place to get water that wasn't Collect Pond was very nearby called the Tea Water Spring or Tea Water Pump, which was a very productive well that had opened in 1750. And today you could find that location on Park Row near the uh, One Police Plaza. It was kind of the premium source of water. This was the fancy water of the day, they would have tea water men that would walk around with buckets of the water and they would sell it to the finer homes. So none of this was being given away by the city? There was no free water to be had? No, I mean, obviously anyone could get water wherever they could find it, but this being the finest water and the water with the best reputation, i.e. not filthy, Mm. it was sold, especially to those people who didn't want to wait in line for it. As we've discussed many times, with the threat of disease often hanging over the city, it's changed the city. Sometimes people have moved out of the city or they Mm -hmm. escaped during the summer to the north, say to Greenwich Village, for example. This has also driven the urge and the need to have cleaner drinking water because not only does disease spread in the water itself, but it spreads 
in the places where water is located. So in these marshes and around Collect Pond, for instance, there would be insects that would spread disease, especially, of course, mosquitoes. Right. Not to mention that water would also be used to help, say, put out fires. And again, sometimes the East River and Hudson wouldn't be that great for this either, especially during the winter when it would completely freeze over and you wouldn't have any additional supply. So even here before the Revolutionary War, there were some enterprising people here in New York who tried to come up with a solution. One of them was an engineer originally from Philly named Christopher Coles. In 1776, he proposed that there be a reservoir that actually sat next to Collect Pond, on the north side of Collect Pond. What he would do is he would drill a well Mm -hmm. um, using a rudimentary steam engine, and that engine would extract the water from the well. Now, it was, of course, sharing water from the same source, the watershed, if you will, as the Collect Pond, but it just wasn't coming from what must have been at that point a top-heavy, gooey, weird, algae-covered mess at Right, this and time. being in a reservoir would be protected, I would assume. So what happened to his plan? The reservoir was at Broadway and White Street, or would have been. It was finished, and he had drilled all the logs that would go along the street that would distribute the water. Right. But that was 1774, and so indeed... With the Revolutionary War, most people fled the city. The British came and occupied it for several years. And as a result, the reservoir and all of his work was left abandoned and eventually destroyed. So when the British fled and with New York back as one of the flagship cities of the new country, there was still no real solution to this. And of course, after this, there were even more terrible strains of yellow fever that swept through the city, killing thousands of people. And what about Collect Pond? Right. By that time, it was completely unusable almost in it for anything, and it was eventually drained at the beginning of the 1800s. Well, and around that same time, in 1798, there was another plan for another reservoir, this one by Joseph Brown, who hatched this plan to build a dam near today's Bronx Zoo. Now, at that point, wow. the land that is today's Bronx Zoo was just way far away, obviously, from the city of New York. And fairly wilderness, right? I mean, like, it was right. just like a few sparse farms. Well, and that's why they had fresh water. And so he wanted to block the, fr- the fresh water from the Bronx River, divert it down using a canal to the Harlem River, and then from there use a, a water wheel to push the water through a pipe down the island all the way down to where people lived, which was a really cool idea, just never happened. And anyway, another plan came to fruition. Mm -hmm. That was the very next year in 1799, when along came Aaron Burr. So the vice president, Mm -hmm. murderer of Alexander Hamilton. So he pops into the picture, he sticks his foot into the water here. Right. And he, he presented himself and his new company called the Manhattan Company as a way to solve this dilemma, to bring fresh water into New York City. And, and his company was initially going to follow much of this plan that was hatched by Joseph Brown with his Bronx River plan. So the, the Bronx plan, essentially. Right. Okay. The only problem with this was that Aaron Burr and the Manhattan Company wasn't primarily interested in water at all. In fact, they had their eye on something far more lucrative, or so they thought, namely banking. They wanted to start their own bank, because at this point, there was this sort of banking monopoly in the United States, where you had the U.S. Federal Bank, and you had the Bank of New York, which was founded by Hamilton, right, so, Burr's rival uh-huh. and victim. Uh, the, the, only, the only bank, the only game in town. Now, stick with me here. 
Byrne, his Manhattan company, got a $2 million contract from the state legislature to bring fresh water into New York City. That sounds great. It seems like a lot of money for that period of time. A lot of money. Mm -hmm. And once they got the contract, they acted upon a little clause in their charter that said that once they were established as a company, they could use these funds in any way they decided. They decided to spend their $2 million thusly, mm-hmm. $100,000 on waterworks and bringing fresh water into the city. All right, so and, it's one twentieth right. of the total. And $1.9 million on creating a bank and loaning <laughs> money and taking on loans and such. I mean, was there any was there any pretense to this at all? I mean, was it called the like Fountain of Youth Bank or was it I mean, was Well, there- no, it, it was called the Bank of the Manhattan Company and it opened on September 1st, 1799 at 40 Wall Street. Now, to be fair, they did take on some water projects. They dug more wells around town, around the base of Manhattan. And they did store it in a reservoir that they built on Chambers Street. And from this reservoir on Chambers Street, they they ran water through hollow logs, but they only ran these logs to wealthy homes in profitable parts of town. So this wasn't really solving the greater issue that New York City needed water for everybody. Well, that doesn't sound like they did anything that they initially had set out or promised that they were going to do. Well, no, because they were also getting water from wells. The water really wasn't that much better than the water in Collect Pond. It, it was also not used for street cleaning or for firefighting or anything. Or so, pervies, right. Right, so it didn't really help out on the disease front either or cleaning up New York. And what do you know, just nine years later, in 1808, they sold the entire waterworks part of their business to New York City, and they focused entirely on banking. So they and, literally did just use it to get their foot in the door here in the world of high finance. That's right. And of course, over the years, cue the sands through the hourglass music. The harp sounds, right? Over the years, this bank of the Manhattan Company would grow and grow and grow and grow. And in 1955, merge with the Chase National Bank to become Chase Manhattan Bank. And in 2000, acquired J.P. Morgan to become J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. And it all started out ostensibly about water And now you know the rest of the story. (laughs) But meanwhile, this didn't solve the problem. New York still didn't have fresh water. Like a few people are getting water more easily. Right. And that's about it. The whole thing was a sham. So in the first quarter of the 19th century, things are still rather grave. We're still using the tea water spring. There are about 250 pump operated wells. That's a lot of wells. But we are entering a period here of great plans, unparalleled inventions here Mm. in New York. By this time, we've had the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, which has carved a city out of the entire island. We've had the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825. Which Which brought commerce and boats and interstate trade to New York City. This is the grand era of the United States, of the grand era of Columbia, the beginning of great infinite sources of wealth into the city. And the city was also growing extremely fast. And would explode even further in population in the coming decades. So the solution, actually, was not in New York at all, but was many, many miles north of the city, 
in a mid-sized body of water called the Croton River, which wound throughout Westchester County during this period. Croton, by the way, is an old Indian word, a uh, Quechuanic word um, for an Indian sachem whose name was Croton, whose, uh, whose name meant wild wind. This had been proven to be a pure and delicious and safe body of water. It was just quite far away from the city, relatively speaking. The very first mention of this in a very serious way was a well-regarded but ultimately rejected presentation in 1831 by DeWitt Clinton. The DeWitt Clinton? No, it was his son, the Colonel DeWitt Clinton. Ah. This plan was rejected. But it sparked a few ideas with some members on the Common Council, including one alderman from a very old Dutch family with the very interesting name Mindert van Skyk. By the way, also a co-founder of the University of the City of New York. Um, you know, we are talking the early 1830s, which is around the time that the school, which became New York University, was founded. He was an alderman, and he actually maneuvered to get the decision made in Albany, in state government. And of course, because it was outside of the city limits, he would need their help to move a plan forward. Eventually, in 1835, a completed plan was approved by the Common Council, and it was even put up to a public vote and approved just a couple months later in April of 1835. So this plan was to create some kind of water system that would take the water from Croton River and bring it down to Manhattan. So the voting public of New York decided this issue on a ballot, whether or not they were willing to pay for this. Yes, exactly. And what about the people up um, around the Croton River who might have been (laughs) displaced by, say, building a giant reservoir? Well, they they unfortunately have less of a say. I'll get to Uh that in a second, unfortunately. A very fine engineer was chosen initially for this project who was named Major David Bates Douglas, who was from West Point and eventually was a professor at the new university, at the new NYU. Ah. So he and others decided on a a particular kind of aqueduct system. This was an invention of water conveyance that had been around since the Roman period, even before. It's a common water supply system uh, using gravity that would slowly flow the water down towards the city. Essentially, you would let gravity do most of the work for you in pressuring the water towards where you needed it to go. Many cities were already using it, in fact, although they were far more modest and certainly not as ambitious as the one that New York was about to try. Right. With this water source being 20-some miles north of the city, no other city had ever attempted any kind of aqueduct this long. Something like this, exactly. It would require building a dam to dam up the river. It would require miles of buried masonry pipe and tunnels that would go through Westchester, along the Hudson, through Yonkers, then through the area that today we consider to be the Bronx, and then would somehow go over the Harlem River and then end at a reservoir that would be in midtown Manhattan. And that's where the water would then be distributed. So that was the initial plan. It was already being worked on, like it was already in process when the Great Fire of 1835 occurred in December, that horrible fire that took out 700 buildings, millions and millions of dollars worth of damage, a blaze that could have been thwarted more quickly, but because of New York's lack of water and because, again, it was frozen rivers, it was very difficult to put out the blaze. Um, This sort of set the spark, if you will, to getting this project on the fast track. Okay, before you jump into the construction of the aqueduct system, Greg, I just have to tell our listeners that, quite ironically, it started storming <laughs> here down near our Lower East Side podcast studio. And we don't have a cistern to, cu- to capture the rainwater. No, so cistern's it- out of town. <laughs> 
So it's sounding a little bit uh, tinkly and rainy in the background. So we apologize. So, the, so yes, those farmers that you had mentioned earlier in Western right. they were very annoyed. They petitioned Albany to put a stay on the work. They weren't ultimately successful. Because they'd be losing all their land to this giant reservoir. Many of these people were quite wealthy families. The most vocal, in fact, uh, was Louis Governor Morris. Of ah, the, the Mor- governor. Yes, this is um, an, uh, this was a relation of his. Different governor. Oh, this is di- yeah, this is a different one. This is a later governor. The upstate farmers, of course, they feared the loss of their land that had been passed down to them for you know hundreds of years. But those closer to New York actually wanted to use some of this construction to spur new growth around the the Bronx area, the Westchester County area. A second big problem was that in is Douglas, the engineer who was hired, well, he wasn't that great. He got on the bad side of the water commissioner who had been hired for the job, who was Stephen Allen, a former mayor of New York and quite powerful at this time. So you got on his side, you got canned, and that's exactly what happened here. So a second engineer was brought in, a railroad planner by the name of John Jervis. He was a lot more competent, I believe. Um, he actually discovered that Douglas hadn't really done that much at oh. that particular time. So he changed. He was able to change a lot of things around. And, and Jervis is seen as a sort of savior of this whole system, right? I've seen his name on the, on the maps of the aqueducts. What eventually did get constructed was of his own design, mostly. So work did begin on the aqueduct in 1837, which is surprising because the panic right. of 1837, a, a huge financial crisis and a depression of several years happened at this time. But amazingly, the aqueduct project managed to stay afloat. It even provided thousands of jobs to people in the area during this downturn. Well, sometimes depressions are a great time to start big public works. Most of the workers were actually new Irish immigrants who had just come over within a few years of this time. And they lived in the shanty towns, essentially up and down the Hudson River. And with them, of course, came some hastily built Catholic churches, many of whom have congregations that are still in the Hudson River Valley today. They also brought some whiskey mills with them around here as well. The temptation of liquor was always hiding behind a tree. Wait, they brought the whiskey mills with them? Well, the whiskey mills came up. They sort of after followed them They up? followed them up, yes. Wow. And as you, there was some labor unrest in 1840. In fact, there was a huge riot of almost a thousand laborers here who were dissatisfied with the money that they were making. And so they stopped working and they formed a group. And it took the mayor actually calling the 27th Regiment to quell the violence here. Oh, that old 27th Regiment. I mean, they, they, they're always being pulled out to quell something or not. Always are in this period. We just talked about them in the NYU show. They were, they were called out to fight down the Stonecutters riots. Yeah, so that's... I'm glad you brought that up. So one of the major projects here is to build a couple bridges. One of them over the Harlem River, I'll talk about in a second. But another one was here at this area called the Sing Sing Kill, where they had to build a bridge. Today, you can actually visit this bridge. It's still standing. It's called the Double Arch. Of course, the famous Sing Sing Prison is right nearby where they are working. And was there at the time. And was there at the time. Now, New York University got in trouble because they hired prison labor to dress the marble for their new building. Right, it was cheaper. However, here on this project, which was actually right next or very close to the prison, no prison labor was used. So what these men were doing, essentially, were digging various 
tunnel styles through various different kinds of ground. They worked mostly through the spring and summer and fall because in the winter they could only excavate and dig, but they couldn't really build anything. And it was very dangerous work, too, with lots of explosives. They even got the attention of a neighbor, a certain Washington Irving, whose house, Sunnyside, is nearby the town of Sleepy Hollow, which he made famous, and the, the aqueduct actually goes through. He actually wrote unpleasantly of these Irish aqueduct laborers. He said, quote, The whole wood has become such a scene of spooking and diablerie that the paddies will not any longer venture out of their shanties at night and might, quote, entirely abandon the goblin regions of Sleepy Hollow, unquote. <laughs> Always creepy, even in his criticism of, he, he, uh, of newly arrived immigrants. I know, it's creepy. It's, everything has a, a, that little golden Irving touch. Now, one of the biggest contentions and undecided things here were how is the aqueduct going to cross the Harlem River? Well, there were three options. One of them was quickly taken off the, the table, and it was tunneling under the Harlem. Now, this would be, of course, something that but New Yorkers would use later for right. many uh, And other, we'll get to right, that. Of course. But it was too early in the game to really consider this. There was also the idea of having a low bridge, something that was very modest in price and scale. But the problem is, is that would block river traffic. And there were other bridges along the Harlem that also blocked it. So... This seemed like this is what they were going to do, in fact. But a lot of forward thinkers, a lot of big thinkers, wanted to build a high bridge, a very, very, very tall bridge that boats could travel back and forth underneath, but something that could be a real architectural feature, something that actually harkened back to these old Roman structures. And, and what would they call this sort of high bridge? Some kind of high bridge. What would be a good name for it? Well... The High Bridge is what they decided on. The High Bridge, in fact, is New York's oldest standing bridge to this day and is no longer used for pumping water, but it was eventually constructed and became a vital part of the Croton Aqueduct. Most of the system was completed in 1840 and was almost ready to go, but an unfortunate accident sort of disrupted plans here almost at the very end. On January 8th of 1841, it was such a bad winter, it snowed so much and then was followed by this strange warm front that went mm. through. So all of a sudden, all the snow melted. The newly built dam couldn't sustain holding back all of that water. It rose 15 feet and then partially collapsed completely flooding the valley and all the people and businesses in it. Uh, entire little villages were swept aside, people who had not yet moved. Every bridge and mill for the 16 miles was washed away. Jervis redesigned a stronger and more sustainable dam here. It was built very quickly so that by 1842, the entire system was ready to go. Before we go on with, with the show here, right. can you just walk us through it just very sort of specifically? Because I've been talking in general terms and right. bridges and dams. Well, and Why don't right, I right. take us way up in Westchester County uh, where this aqueduct begins at the dam? Mm -hmm. The aqueduct was a 40-mile-long sloping masonry aqueduct that ran the water from this great dam through Westchester County, through forests, through towns and cities, and over bridges and through tunnels. It was always sloping just enough for the gravity to carry 30 million gallons of water a day along at a continuous pace. The aqueduct was made out of masonry, but it was covered by earth to protect it, obviously, mm -hmm. so that it could flow throughout the year. You can imagine to keep this continuous aqueduct moving along was, was no small engineering feat. 
and it didn't just go straight. They had to follow the grade of the Earth. They had to look oh, for uh-huh. the areas in the Earth that, that sort of best matched that gradient that they, they needed for the slope. Right. It's not like modern pipes where you can just build them to sort of and withstand. with straight. Right. Uh-huh. No, this had to keep up. Now, the Harlem River, as you mentioned, there's a high bridge. It was completed in 1848, which is six years after the aqueduct. Before that, they had actually built a temporary low bridge that was used to transport the water until the high bridge was completed. So it would get over then for the opening. It got over The water got over this low bridge, and then it continued down Manhattan's west side. From there, it continued on down until it arrived at the Yorkville Receiving Reservoir, which was located between 79th and 86th Street, and between 6th and 7th Avenues. Did you hear me, Greg? Hmm. Between 6th and 7th Avenues at 79th and 86th Street. That's Central Park. Right. Or it's today kind is of Central a, Park. It's, it's today. It's sort of an impossible intersection. <laughs> but, but it's today Central Park. But at the time, uh, Central Park hadn't been constructed. So we have to imagine that it was not at this time a park. It would be subsumed eventually by the park in the design. But right. for, and for decades, it would be part of the early park. So this reservoir was a big fortress of a place. It received more than 30 million gallons of water each day. From there, the water would continue further south to the Murray Hill Distributing Reservoir, which was between 40th and 42nd Street at 5th Avenue, Mm -hmm. which is the site of today's New York Public Library. At the time, it was a, it, like a little bit north of the city. Like right. even the wealthiest members of, Fi- of Fifth Avenue had not yet even moved up no, to this point in the eighteen forties. Right. No, mm-hmm. this was a giant, imposing structure. It looked almost like an Egyptian tomb with fifty foot tall granite walls that were themselves twenty five feet wide. Again, I find with all of the architecture of the aqueduct, they're reaching back to really ancient Romans, forms right. to, the, to the Egyptians here. I'm glad that they paid attention to aesthetics because this reservoir would become itself a tourist attraction. So the people would come up on the weekends and at night to stroll around the promenade, which was built at the top of the reservoir. So you could get up there and take a nice little walk around, look down at the water that would be piped directly <laughs> to your residence if you were wealthy enough to afford it. And from here, the water would enter into the city's plumbing system, which wasn't terribly developed in the 1840s when this opened. So the water came on officially Mm -hmm. on July 4th, 1842 for the great opening ceremonies. And remember, Greg, they knew how to throw an opening (laughs) ceremony back in those days. They threw a five-mile-long parade to celebrate the opening of the water, which had we not had water... And then suddenly water arrived in our kitchens and in our bathrooms. We would be thrilled. Well, after a five-mile parade in July, I'm going to need a lot of water after that. So, Most notably in the festivities, a fountain shot forth with this fresh Croton water 50 feet into the air at City Hall Park. There was even a, a famous songwriter of the day wrote a special song about the Croton Fountain and Reservoir that a choir performed wow. behind the fountain. So it was a hugely monumental event. And this would have been in front of dignitaries and officials like Mayor Morris and Governor Seward, along with President John Tyler, who we did, just don't talk wow. enough about. No, no. And former presidents John Quincy Adams and Martin Van Buren. What collection of presidents here right. for the turning on of the water. Right. Well, this This was a huge undertaking, the biggest in American civic history, and they were present for it. The world really looked at New York's water distribution system as a model, and the city was very proud of this. But practically, you know, I just 
joshed about turning on the water in, <laughs> uh-huh. in our kitchen, but that wasn't really what was happening for most New Yorkers. In fact, two years later, there would be only 6,175 houses that had been connected to the system. And these would, of course, be the wealthiest residents who could sure. afford to install baths and running water and such. However, hygiene would improve really for most New Yorkers because there would be public baths and fountains with fresh water that they never had access to before. One slightly humorous aside, because water was now not being drawn from the city's wells... (laughs) Oh no, what happened to them? Well, it caused the water table to rise which caused cellars and basements all over the city to flood. So the city dug sewers to drain the streets and these basements, and by 1852, New York had constructed 148 miles of sewers. In 1864, the High Bridge would get an upgrade, Mm -hmm. and they would also put pedestrian access on the top of the High Bridge. So there's some great photos of people taking a Sunday promenade on top of this High Bridge with water, millions of gallons of water (laughs) racing through beneath them. Coursing underneath them. But now we're talking around Civil War, post-Civil War era here, and New York government's getting a lot more corrupt. How is this affecting the water supply system and how it gets spread throughout the city? Well, it did slow things down. This Croton governing board, which Mm -hmm. was doing these great things, in 1870, that would be taken over by the city's Department of Public Works, which was headed by... Boss Tweed. Right. So things would slow down. Tweed had this irritating habit of awarding contracts to people, of course, who would give him kickbacks. Right. Unless you're one of those awardees, of course. And that would be a very lovely contract to have. Right. And it was Department of Public Works that in 1881 started talking about building a new aqueduct. Because, imagine, the city that was New York, that had first turned on the water in City Hall Park in 1842... Mm was not the same city in 1881. It was four times the size, four times the population. And an aqueduct that had been constructed four decades previous simply couldn't possibly keep up with the water demands of a growing city. So even by increasing the capacity of the Croton Reservoir here to 90 million gallons a day, it was still not enough water. For a city that in 1880 had over 1 million residents... And this was the start of the Gilded Age, so the city had a lot more money, so they did not shy away from pouring tons of money to expand and make their city a world-class place. And rich people didn't shy away from equipping their mansions with toilets that flushed and with indoor plumbing. So people were consuming water in a different way as well. That's very important. So in 1883, the mayor, William Grace, approved an expansion of the entire Croton system. This time they would put it under the direction of Chief Engineer... Isaac Newton. <laughs> a very... <laughs> a different Newton. Well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? No. Oh. This new system would open in 1891 and would deliver 300 million gallons of water a day. So three and a half times the capacity. Yes. A new Croton Dam was built. The dam itself was finished in 1905 and was the largest dam in the world at that time. And you can still visit it today. Tom and I this past weekend, went to the dam itself. We went and visited. We walked upon it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a place called Croton Gorge Park. It's very lovely. There's one section that's sort of half dam, half natural waterfall. Um, But I would say that even walking on top of it was even more more amazing, more impressive. Right. Greg brought his parasol. We strolled daintily upon the top of the dam. And saw dam near everything. (laughs) 
Of course, this new dam required the evacuation and flooding of t- other towns that had since developed around the, d- the old dam, yeah. which, of course, perturbed quite a number of people. Many, many towns were erased from the map by this new Croton for the pleasure of New York's bathing and drinking. But I, I do like this story. One town, a little hamlet called Katona, was actually picked up, literally building by building. All 50 buildings of the town were picked up and moved out of the sight of uh, where the water would be. And so you can still go there oh, today. And Katona. It's, it's, it's called Old Katona and then New Katona. Do we know who picked them up? Uh, were they rolled? The town was rolled on logs by horse. The horse pulled the buildings in a, on a series of logs. Must have been a lot of logs. Right. And a lot of horses. <laughs> Now, from the dam, the pipes that were dug to transport the water, they were deeper than the older ones, and they were all entirely underground, um, because, of course, they had the technical capacity right now to drill tunnels, to drill holes. So they had 30 miles worth of underground tunnels, which were, at the time, were the longest tunnels in the world in the 1890s. The most ambitious portion of this, of course, they were fretting several decades before about a high bridge and a low bridge, but we can't do a tunnel. Well, now they can finally do a tunnel, so they, sure enough, they barreled right underneath the Harlem River. Now, they also had need to build a new reservoir on the Bronx side here. Um, Because they'd have to build something much larger. So much more water that needs to be stored. So, in the Fordham area of the Bronx, or what they called the Annexed District back in the day, um, they built the 125-acre Jerome Park Reservoir, which was eventually opened in 1906. If the name sounds familiar, it's because it used to be a racetrack. The Jerome in Jerome Park was a Wall Street speculator named Leonard Jerome. In our Draft Riots podcast, I believe you told a story about a man who protected the New York Times building with a machine ah, right, gun. Right, of that, course. That man was Leonard Jerome of Jerome Park fame here. He also happens to be the grandfather of Winston Churchill. What a legacy. Clearly from those anecdotes, he was he was a wealthy man, so he loved horse racing, so he had a racetrack here, the Jerome Park racetrack, that was a significant site in the world of sports. It was one of the first races of the Belmont Stakes was, was ran here, and some of the very first American polo games were also played on Jerome Park. But that was closed by 1889 and turned into this reservoir for the new Croton system. It was so large that it actually contained portions of the old aqueduct as well. So they both flowed into this reservoir. And while it was being constructed, the old Croton aqueduct system was still in place because clearly people still needed to get water. However, the Murray Hill Reservoir, or mm-hmm. um, the one that was further downtown on 42nd Street, well, that one was no longer needed by this time. It just was not adequate enough. So it was dismantled. And today, of course, as you mentioned, it's the New York Public Library and Bryant Park sit in that space today. That was demolished in the 1890s. Now, the old Croton system actually still operated. It was just very, very small in comparison by this time. So now we have tons more water coming into the city, so we certainly won't need any more, right? Right, because that's what's been happening throughout this story, (laughs) throughout this podcast. You build enough aqueducts, and the city's satisfied. Until? Until, say, the dawn of the 20th century, (laughs) as soon as the new Croton Aqueduct system goes into place, and people realize that they still need more water. And now you had not just Manhattan that you had to give water to, you needed to distribute it to the other boroughs. I want to spend one minute on what Brooklyn 
is doing around this period of time because they had a somewhat similar system to the Croton Aqueduct, much smaller. Um, they used two reservoirs that they had in, in Brooklyn, the Ridgewood and one on Mount Prospect, which was one of the highest points in Brooklyn and is near Prospect Park today. The water for these reservoirs came from several streams and ponds in Long Island, including one of them called the Baisley Pond. These are all built over, and when consolidation happened, it would, it would join the New York water system. But today, there's a couple boulevards in Brooklyn with very curious names that trace themselves to these reservoirs, Conduit Avenue hmm. and Force Tube Avenue. Force Tube? <laughs> Force Tube Avenue is from this era of reservoirs, and a very strange street to live on, I would imagine. So now you have all the boroughs, you have even more population, the city is not getting smaller. And just to keep hammering on this particular item, people are installing more and more toilets and sinks and other conveniences that we can't imagine living without today, all of which were a drain on the Croton system. And we're stepping away from the era of public baths and to the era of individual private home baths. And apartments. So in 1905, the city purchased land to build a new reservoir and to start planning yet another aqueduct system. So we've really come to the end of the story of the the, the Croton system. And I'll just spend one minute talking about two other systems here, Mm -hmm. because the Croton water still flows today from the new reservoir. But there are two other, actually more important water systems that New York City uses today to get its water. So in 1905, the city purchased land to build the Ashokan Reservoir up in the Catskill Mountains. Residences, as before, were relocated, and a 92-mile aqueduct was drilled through rock, and even under the Hudson River once it got to New York City, which was, of course, no small engineering feat. But 30 years later, that simply wasn't enough water. So as before, the city started in on a new system, the Delaware system, which is just to the west of the Catskill system, building a reservoir on 13,000 acres of land with an 85-mile aqueduct, the Delaware aqueduct. So with all of these new reservoirs and systems, what ever happened to that old Yorkville receiving reservoir. Right. The original, the one that's in Central Park, the, 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 from the old Croton, which must have seemed very small by this time. Well, and you had mentioned that the reservoir to which it gave its water to be distributed over at Murray Hill mm-hmm. was long gone. Right. And yet this Central Park reservoir, the original one, just sat there and didn't really do much. So they drained the reservoir on January 23rd, 1930. They start the draining, and by June, they, they had a plan from the Society of Landscape Architects to transform it into a giant oval lawn. While it was still being drained and sort of planted and everything, because this was 1930, mm-hmm. during the Depression, it was at times even used as a shanty town with people living, squatting on it. I believe this is the iconic images of the, of the Great Depression are people who live in the shanty town around where this reservoir is. And in 1934, with the new LaGuardia administration taking power in New York City and a new commissioner taking charge of the parks, Robert (laughs) Moses, he oversaw the completion of this great lawn, as it became known. Now, today, half of our water comes from that Delaware system, the last one that I talked about. 40% comes from the Catskill system, 
and about 10% still comes from the Croton system, or from the new Croton aqueduct and reservoir, although that's currently on hold because mm-hmm. the Jerome Reservoir that you mentioned is in the process of being drained and, and a filtration plant being set up. Right. At the time of the recording of this show, September 2012, it was it was empty when we were there. It was not being used because uh, they're building a water treatment plant. So right. there's lots of changes happening. So when you're drinking water in the city, and we just opening up a faucet or your Brita, um, they're drinking water from one of these three sources. Right. Most of it is unfiltered. The water from the Delaware system and the Catskill system doesn't need to be filtered because it's just that pure. Oh, it's that marvelous. The Croton system is currently getting filtered. And of course, there are chemicals that are added to the water, you know, for hygienic purposes and for dental hygiene and such. But whatever happened to the old Croton aqueduct? I mean, they certainly didn't rip it up. Right. Well, the, the, the old Crone Aqueduct went out of service in 1955, and it has since been transformed into the old Croton Trail, which is a 26-mile nature trail that's used by hikers and bikers and cross-country skiers and such. We even hiked a bit mm-hmm. ourselves last weekend. It's a beautiful way to see the Hudson River Valley, and beautiful, of course, around the fall. And it's amazing to think as you're walking along these trails, always on land that's sort of, that's not quite flat. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a little bit of a curve to the earth. It's because you're walking over the city's first great water transit system. So that's our history of New York water. But I have I have one more question, which I've always wanted to know the answer to this. And it involves... And you think I know the answer? I feel like you know the answer because you referenced this earlier. Water towers. You know how some buildings have water towers, right. which seems like a very old-fashioned type of thing in the, in the era of modern plumbing. But in fact, to this day, it, I mean, it, it dots the city skyline. Right. And those are mostly found, those water towers, and the city has ten to 15,000 of them, mm-hmm. mostly on older buildings. It's all about water pressure. Once the water is flowing in the city's distribution water mains, mm-hmm. the pressure is great enough in those pipes, once it enters your apartment building, to get up to the sixth floor. So if your building has less than six floors, no your problem. Once apartment buildings started getting taller than that, there was a problem. How are you going to get the water up to those higher floors? And so they came up with a very basic concept, the water tower. The water comes into the basement where it's attached to a pump, which shoots it straight up to the water tower on the roof so that the water can then fall down into your apartment. There's enough pressure going down for it to serve everybody in the building. So it's not necessarily the oldest buildings. It's just buildings that are over six floors from a certain era. Right. Newer buildings are constructed with something, I think, a little more automatic. They can shoot and Mm -hmm. pump the water up faster. But happily, these, these water tower systems are very effective and very efficient. And they're a great, iconic rooftop site. So that is the history of New York City water and the Croton Aqueduct. Check out the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, for some pictures of the construction and some of these reservoirs. They make very photogenic subjects, I have to say. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. And if you haven't done so already, you should check out Greg's recent walking tour of Washington Square Park, 
I do a one-hour tour of Washington Square Park sharing over 200 years of history. You can find the tour for sale on iTunes or any place that you buy digital music. You can also go to the blog, and we have a little store there on the side where you can buy it directly from a place called CD Baby. So That's BoweryBoysPodcast.com. If you like our podcast, I think you'll love the walking tour. And one, one last, last thing, Greg. We can't possibly record a show on the Croton Aqueduct without thanking one of our very first fans and supporters, Mitch, who planted this idea in our heads long, long ago. So thank you very much for listening to our story of the water supply. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.